in the 70s here on the mountaintop with the sun shining. Very beautiful day. <laughs> I do intend to be home with you next Sabbath, God willing, and everything works. But uh, it's nice to be able to connect by phone. Uh, we do have a Bible study coming up on Monday, the 17th. Uh, begins the fifth month. And by the way, the fifth month also we have a fast day, the tenth day of the fifth month. That'll be Thursday the 27th. That isn't this coming week, it's the week after, but I thought I'd give you a little heads up on it. You have it on your calendar, but sometimes that can slip by us. And it's nice to have a little lead time on a fast so we can do some planning as, as necessary. Uh, to be able to keep it and understand it and uh, talk to God about the reason for this particular fast we might be keeping. So, 27th is the fast of the fifth month. A little report on George. Uh, he's still in uh, items with, with the uh, Social, uh, Social Security VA place and uh, Apparently, we'll be there for at least three more weeks uh, fighting that infection in his foot and uh, various things. So, uh, he is still going to be around for a bit at least before going to Texas as planned. But who knows? Uh, sometimes the plans of men and mice go awry and we all want to be sure we're in line with God's plan and he has ways of getting us where we need to be according to him. So uh, we need to keep George in our prayers. Uh, he is, in some respects, failing, I, I guess you could say. But they have him on antibiotics and probably some different drugs and so on, which may affect his mentality. Uh, those things do that. So uh, I don't know how much might be... Uh, a little bit of deterioration in his own memory and so on, and how much might be attributable to the drugs. So that part doesn't really matter. It's just that he's our brother. He's our brother in Christ, and we need to implore God to take care of him and and get him where he needs to be, wherever that is, same as it is with all of us. Let's go today uh, to begin to Matthew 12. We've been talking about the Sabbath, and I am going to continue that today with some different elements here and maybe a few thoughts that we haven't really considered before and how our relationship is truly with the Sabbath. Let's go to Matthew 12 then. It says at that time, Jesus went on the Sabbath day through the corn, and his disciples were hungry, and began to pluck the ears of corn and to eat. Now, they were not harvesting the corn uh, in terms of a crop. They were just hungry and pinched off a, an ear to chew on but when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Behold, your disciples do that which is not lawful to do upon the Sabbath. Now, in their view, uh, you harvest corn, and that's work. 
and therefore you shouldn't work on the Sabbath. The Pharisees tended to be very, very uh, detailed in everything that they thought and taught, and the Jews as a whole, uh, even yet today, are very, very detailed and so very, very careful and uh, sometimes they miss the whole point. Uh, today, even, Jews are not allowed to tear off toilet paper on the Sabbath. I suppose if you're going to go that far, you should not be able to pull a lever to flush a toilet either. Because that's just as much work as tearing off a piece of paper. I don't think they take it quite that far. But they take it a long, long way beyond what God intended, and Christ is going to point that out here. But sometimes the physical details, and sometimes even physical ritual, which may be in the Bible for some reason, uh, can be overridden by spiritual principles and spiritual needs. Let's go on and see this because he uses this opportunity to teach them something that they didn't get. They didn't get much of anything he said. Didn't want to. Have you not read, he says in verse 3, what David did when he was hungry, and they that were with him? So he had a band of men. They were hungry. It was the Sabbath. How he entered into the house of God and did eat the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, neither for them which were with him, but only for the priests. So God had set this up that way. Only the priests could take partake of it, and it wasn't lawful for anyone else to do so. Now there was a law. There was a ritual. It wasn't one of the Ten Commandments. It was a ritual but the rituals were to be followed very carefully. Now, God had also said they were not to touch the Ark of the Covenant. And Uzzah, meaning well, reached out thinking it needed to be steadied. Now, truly, it would have been better had it fallen on the ground than for him to reach out and prevent it from falling on the ground, which is what he thought he was doing. But God had said no, and Uzzah died as a result of that, because he had done something that he had been told not to do. Now, that was the ark. It wasn't just the showbread. So the ark of the covenant was uh, multitudes ahead of showbread in terms of, of holiness, and we have to recognize that some things are more important than others. And we have to learn to have the mind of God and spiritual understanding through his spirit to have the wisdom to know what is truly, utterly, irrevocably important and what is something that is of lesser value and might at times be overridden if there is a spiritual value that is higher. In this particular case, 
uh, he points out something that truly was illegal, but it wasn't on the level of the Ark of the Covenant. So where's the wisdom? Which one are you willing to uh, go around for a spiritual reason, and what might you not? Uh, you have to think carefully of that before you infringe in an area that might get you killed. David didn't get killed for doing this. <clears throat> he had a need. And God said, Christ said right here, that whatever hunger they were experiencing, it doesn't say how long it had been since they ate, uh, but they were experiencing, I think, probably more than just a from breakfast to lunch hunger, and reached out and did something which was illegal, but because of the need that was there, God was willing to overlook it. Now here, uh, yes, harvesting corn takes energy, doesn't it? Uh, harvesting a crop of corn takes a lot of energy and time. Pulling an ear doesn't require a lot of energy, and it doesn't take a whole lot to peel back the shuck and eat what's inside. Everything requires energy. Breathing requires energy. The Sabbath is here, and we are human, and it takes energy to breathe, to walk, to get up, to do anything. The key is where is our energy directed? If there is movement, it is, a, is it a movement that is important, that has spiritual value, or is it just movement? During the week, it can be movement to do work. On the Sabbath, the movement, the energy that is expended is toward God, toward knowing him better, following him better, building a relationship better with him, and doing certain things on the Sabbath in a uh, more zealous way than we might on Wednesday, because it's a day that's dedicated to worshiping God in a special way that all the others aren't as important. So there's a great deal of value in the Sabbath, and we're going to see that very clearly here. Have you not read in the law how that in the Sabbath days the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? It takes a lot of energy to sacrifice animals. Uh, it takes a lot of energy to travel between churches to give sermons. Let's say um, a priest or a minister does uh, oftentimes today, it takes a lot of energy to sit here and talk about this and to focus my mind and to put emotion, energy, feeling, strength into what is being said and being sure that it is said correctly. So this is, in that sense, expending much energy is work. But what is it expended toward? is what is the point here. It's extended toward us all coming to know God and his word and his truth better and serving him better and ourselves then being served by what we do in a way that is a blessing to us. So 
energy can be expended on the Sabbath, but how is critical. And he felt and taught that to pick a piece of corn and eat it on the Sabbath is not wrong. I can remember back when I was living where I had an orchard in Idaho, and there were some times on Sabbath when I had little time uh, that I might wander out into the orchard if the plums or whatever were ripe, and uh, I wouldn't say, well, I must not uh, pick a plum and eat it here on the Sabbath and just slap my little hand and say, be good. No, it didn't take much energy to reach out and pull something that was ripe that God had made and eat it. It's not wrong to eat on the Sabbath. In fact, we prepare food on Friday. The, the energy and work to prepare it is done on Friday. The enjoyment of it comes on the Sabbath. So whether it's corn or a plum or a peach or whatever, it's not wrong to be out taking a little stroll, enjoying the creation God has made, and uh, sticking some of it in your mouth. That's not a big deal. And Christ is making it plain that even working on the Sabbath for the right reasons is okay. Expending energy to give a sermon, to sacrifice an animal, uh, those things that have to do with God are okay. So, But we need to be careful. I don't think it's the day for a minister, and I've seen it happen, uh, to be going through looking at airline schedules and planning a trip on the Sabbath because he had the time in this particular case. And, uh, well, this is for the work. Now, you can use that excuse, this is for the work, this is for the church, and do most anything, like make travel plans, travel, whatever, if you're doing it let's say, for God. But, no. Giving a sermon takes probably more energy than checking airline schedules. But what is aimed at helping us obey God better, while the other is just business. Whether you're in a corporation or a church, making travel plans is something that is not necessary on the Sabbath. So we have to understand the principle, whatever it might be that we want to do or are thinking about doing, how does it fit in with God, His creation, the particular day that we're on, and the meaning and purpose of that particular day? Is it a day designed for work or a day designed specifically for worship? So then how does he explain this? Uh, the priests profane the Sabbath, but there's no blame there. In other words, technically what they're doing, when you're butchering an animal, it's work. I've done a lot of it, I know. It's work. It's hard work. And if you do it on Wednesday or on the Sabbath, it's the same amount of energy and work. And one day, it's okay, and another day... It's not okay, but you don't have any blame because it is done directly in the worship of God.
like a sermon is. So he says, I say to you that in this place is one greater uh, than the temple. So they were sacrificing animals and not held uh, to their charge. And he says, I'm here and I'm greater than the temple is. He's the one that created the temple. But if you had known what this means, I will have mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. So their rule said, don't even pick a piece of corn on the Sabbath. But Christ said, which is better? Sit here feeling hungry on the Sabbath or pluck some corn and eat it and be comfortable and thankful to God that he gave you corn. Which which is better? God likes mercy better than sacrifice. He had a whole sacrificial system, but he has a greater quality in his character than sacrifice, and that is one of those things is mercy. What do we prefer? Do you like to sacrifice? Do you enjoy sacrificing? Even if it's needful sacrifice, is it fun? Not necessarily, because sacrifice hurts. But mercy is a wonderful thing that we all look forward to and want. So mercy is much higher on the list of things that we should desire or want or have as a quality than sacrifice. Now, Christ sacrificed himself. That was not fun. It was very, very difficult. And it had a good purpose. Sometimes sacrifice is necessary and needful. And with you and me, if he hadn't sacrificed himself, we would have no future other than death. That's just it. So sacrifice is very important. But wasn't his death an act of mercy? He absolutely sacrificed himself to have mercy on us. So in that sense, the goal was mercy and salvation. The sacrifice, the physical pain was just what was necessary to produce something that was higher. So mercy is greater than sacrifice. And God the Father and Jesus Christ himself today being able to have mercy on us because of his sacrifice is a higher value in the end. The sacrifice was an incredibly high value at that moment. But the Sacrifice was not the end-all, be-all purpose of it. Mercy and salvation were the purpose, ultimately. It's just the sacrifice was required ahead of time. So Christ said, mercy is greater than sacrifice in the pecking order of things. Now, does that mean you just go around disobeying uh, and then say, well, this is just mercy? No, you have to be careful. Then he makes a statement, For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath day. Yeah. To read that, 
you would think that it meant only that Christ is the Lord of the Sabbath because he calls himself the Son of Man. But I think we'll see in a different scripture here that he's telling us more than that in verse 8. Now, let's, we'll get to that here in a moment, though. Let's, let's go on down. Uh, when he was departed thence, he went into their synagogue, and behold, there was a man which had his hand withered, and they asked him, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath days, that they might accuse him? So, you know, healing took effort. Spiritual effort is nothing else. Uh, of course, spiritual effort's greater than physical effort. Uh, you will find in life that doing spiritual work is harder than doing physical work. Uh, spiritual work is of the mind and the emotion and of the spirit and is more difficult to do properly than physical work. Get a prayer just right and a relationship with God just right as compared to building a cabinet just right. Physically, it's easier to do a lot of things than it is to do the spiritual. It takes more energy, more dedication, because the things of the spirit can't, in one sense, be measured and cut and glued together in the way that something physical can. It takes a lot of work to do spiritual, or energy to do spiritual work. There's no question about that. You can go to work and in eight, eight hours in a day produce quite a bit of lovely physical things. But you can set about to build a relationship with a God you cannot see, with a Holy Spirit that is in you that you don't see, and find that it's harder to pray and study and meditate properly than it is to do physical labor. So, healing requires what? On your part, faith, trust, belief. That's harder to come by on a spiritual level for healing uh, than physical means. It's much easier for people to find or go to people in this world who are trained in helping the sick or healing. Uh, I don't know that you can say they really heal. God is our healer. Some things they do can mitigate issues or take away uh, facts, or I mean uh, uh, issues. But healing, when it comes to actually changing something in our body and causing it to work right instead of to not work is something that God does. Now, there you can use figs uh, for a poultice, or you can use the herbs God gave us. Uh, that kind of thing is okay. But when you start making chemical compounds, uh, you're getting yourself toward the trouble line. But on the Sabbath, is it okay to heal? They wanted to accuse him of sin if he healed anybody. And he said to them, What man shall there be among you that shall have one sheep, and if it fall into a pit on the Sabbath day, will he not lay hold on it 
and lift it out. Now, that's work. That takes a lot of energy sometimes to get a sheep out of the ditch. If, you know, sheep are kind of helpless sometimes. They get in a position where they can't do anything. I mentioned this last week with a those horns in the fence, in other words. How much, then, is a man better than a sheep? Wherefore, it is lawful to do well on the Sabbath days. Visit the sick, heal the sick, raise the dead. Those are, la- those are uh, legal on the Sabbath day. Not a problem. There's mercy. There's doing something that is good, but it needs to be good in terms of helping someone in a very loving way that includes mercy and, let's say, the power and will of God. Healing requires that. Getting a sheep out of a pit is simply physical. So sometimes we have to use great wisdom in what we can expend energy on and should. Generally, you don't go around throwing sheep into a ditch just so you can get them out and make work for yourself for whatever reason it is that you want to throw an ox in the ditch because we can go into that business. Uh, whoops, my car quit. i got to fix it. Well, why were you driving it on the Sabbath? Uh, was it for on your way to church or were you doing something else? And you don't need to fix your car on the Sabbath. It's not a sheep that will die. It's just an inanimate object that will sit there until Sunday or Monday or Tuesday and can be fixed. So it doesn't need mercy. A sheep caught could die, and it needs mercy. So we need to understand and have enough of the Spirit of God to know when something is a merciful act or when it's just something we do because that's what we want to do, and we use mercy to excuse it. Uh, it's, a, it's kind of a fine line that you have to walk to be sure something is of value. But what Christ is making as a point here in this context is there, there is a spiritual intent in the New Testament that overcomes physical ritual when there is a proper need for such. And you have to determine, is this a, an act of mercy or just something I think I need to do today that doesn't require mercy uh, on the Sabbath day? Even eating something that hasn't been prepared ahead, but the corn didn't need a whole lot of preparation, did it? They ate it raw, right there on the spot, no big deal. So he said, having lunch, if you will, and being able to talk to God and pray without thinking about just your stomach, which is of more value. Christ was there probably teaching his disciples. If you were hungry, maybe you'd be paying more attention to your stomach than to what he was saying. So have a piece of corn and listen in comfort. Not a problem. Let's go to Mark 2. It's a a different account of this same thing. Uh, And 
he talks again about the priests and so on. But down in verse 27, it's quite interesting. He said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. Well, now, what does that mean? He was using this as a situation where there might be some rules that could be set aside for a greater spiritual reason at one time or another. But he's also saying that God made the Sabbath for us. Go back to Genesis 1, and you start reading of the creation of what we see around us. Sun, moon, and stars, the earth, rebuilt, refabricated for us. And he created the trees and the birds and the bees and the everything that is around us. And then he created the Sabbath. Now, Christ is saying here that he created the Sabbath for man. He didn't create man for the Sabbath. It was part of the creation that was made for man. So he, he made them a garden to live in. And he told them to manage it, to take care of it, to be sure that everything was in order on in the Garden of Eden. Uh, they weren't to be slovenly and lazy and just let it go to pot, but to dress and to keep it in the it properly. Now, he's putting the Sabbath in the same category. He made it for us just like he made dogs and cats and sheep and goats for us. So the Sabbath was made with us in mind, and the Sabbath, as we've already discussed, uh, was put here as a picture of what is to come. A time of rest, a time of security, a time of peace, like the kingdom of God in the millennium is going to be. So a day is as a year, and the Sabbath then is a day that represents a thousand-year period of time of rest. So he made the Sabbath for us to give us hope for a peaceful time in the future. We would have six days of hard labor at difficult times under Satan, then he would be bound, and we would have a thousand years of peace on the earth for man. So man is only going to exist so long, and then God's plan will be finished, and he'll either be spirit or he won't exist one way or the other. So the Sabbath is here to picture the future of man from Adam and Eve on through to the end of the plan that he is currently working on. So it was made for us. And if we're to manage the animals, manage the trees, manage the garden, and in that sense the Garden of Eden represented the whole world, and the thorns and thistles and things and various things that we deal with today are a result of not taking care of things properly in the Garden of Eden. Obeying God, serving Him, doing what He said, instead of disobeying Him. They didn't manage the spiritual part right at all. And threw it away. 
The spiritual part is the import, most important part. So, what I'm driving at is that God made us Lord of the Sabbath. What does that mean? That we can do anything we want or we can change it or... No. It means that he made us to manage the Sabbath, to keep the Sabbath, not to allow the Sabbath to fall into disarray, but that everything be done properly and keep the Sabbath the way he created it. So the Sabbath is to us a responsibility, just like the Garden of Eden was the responsibility, like having pets and animals is a responsibility. So is the Sabbath. We are responsible for making sure that it is kept properly, that it is managed properly, that our efforts, our thoughts, everything is to be done in a correct way. So he will hold us accountable for how we present the Garden of Eden or the Sabbath to him. We're Lord of the Sabbath. That is, we're the manager of it. Now, he is the God who made it all, the birds, the bees, and the Sabbath. So he's the one that sets the rules. We're here to manage everything that he has given us. And the Sabbath was a gift from God. So if you're given a gift by God, then you have a responsibility to use that gift Lovingly, thankfully, in gratefulness to the giver, in respect to the giver, and to use it wisely. Now, when you give somebody a gift, you give it to them because you have an emotion. You have a thought. You have a loving feeling toward them. And you want to do something nice for them. And when you give that gift, you would love to see a smile, maybe a big hug, maybe a thank you for doing something you didn't have to do, something nice for me. And you're grateful, you're thankful. And the giver would love to see you put that to good use, to enjoy it, to like it, to respect it. Uh People get all upset around Christmas time because people give them something. I didn't need another sweater. Thank you, or a necktie. Uh, they don't really appreciate it. They just exchange those things because they're supposed to. Sometimes they have feeling with it, yes, and their feelings get hurt if the recipient does not have proper, in their view, respect for it. If they disdain it or throw it away or take it back to the store the next day, then the giver is upset, frustrated, offended that they didn't appreciate that gift. Now, God gave us the Sabbath as a gift, and he expects us to respect it, to love it, to use it uh, for good. And it is a spiritual not a physical thing. Now, it's a physical day, like Tuesday or Wednesday, but it's created for spiritual reasons, and we are to manage it 
on a spiritual level the way God intended and according to his rules and ways. I don't think we probably think of ourselves as the Lord of the Sabbath. Uh, when we start keeping it, sometimes we think it's a bondage. It's a time of boredom. It's a time of what do I do with this time? Uh, we're not used to that. It takes a while to get used to it, and I think as you keep it over the years, you come to respect it more, unless uh, you just don't bother to take the energy to keep it the way God intended it to be kept. You just sort of idle it away. Why is the Sabbath boring? Maybe getting closer to God, maybe praying, maybe studying, maybe meditating on higher things than just the physical job you might have, takes effort. It takes energy. And maybe we don't want to do that. And so we don't use our minds actively to worship God, but we just sit and be bored because we can't do what we want to be doing, and we don't want to do what God has asked us to do, so we'd rather just sit there and be bored. Well, it should not be a boring day, as we're going to see a little more later on. Well, I think I'll have time. But let's go from here to Ephesians 5. I skipped over where I left off last week uh, for a purpose to get down here to let us see how important the Sabbath is to us. Uh, because we left, I, I left a little bit on the, well, actually a lot on the table when I was discussing intimacy uh, on the Sabbath and whether that is good, right, or wrong, or whatever. And I want to address that again more from a spiritual uh, concept than merely physical. When it comes to sex in marriage or any other kind of sex, you can find thousands and thousands of books and videos uh, with people to explain various things physically to you if you want to. Uh, there's a lot of that stuff around. But is there much in terms of the spiritual? That's a little rare and hard to find. Now, we go to Ephesians 5 often to, re to explain the relationship between a man and a woman in marriage. And it's a very, very important passage uh, for daily living and everything else, but there's another element here that I want us to truly consider from a spiritual standpoint, and why, then, it might be all right, since God says don't seek your own pleasures on the Sabbath, would it be all right to have intimacy on the Sabbath if married, because that is and should be pleasurable if people have understanding, knowledge, and right attitudes. But is it wrong to have that kind of pleasure? Let's pick it up in Ephesians 5, in verse uh, 21. Submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Now, the relationship between a man and woman should be conducted in the fear of God. Fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And wisdom is related throughout the Bible, 
from God, and his word is truth. And there's a lot to say about a physical relationship between man and woman in the Bible. It is the textbook on it. Go to the Song of Songs and other places, and it will show you an awful lot from God. So submitting yourselves in your relationship and how you conduct that relationship with fear of God, with all his words in mind, that's the way you need to approach marriage. Because it is a combination of male and female only, I'll say, uh, the way God made it. And that relationship has to include God. It isn't just a physical thing between men and women, but God is central to it. He made it. He very, very carefully and in great detail formed human beings man and woman. Uh, he is very, very aware of everything about our bodies. Everything. He carefully designed all systems, uh, including that which has to do with uh, procreation, if you will. He's very intimate with it, knows it, created it, made it, made it all to work. So, since he created us and created it, then we have to approach it in the fear of God. Not many people on earth do. Uh, intimacy, physically, is just, for most people, a recreational thing, whether it be with husband and wife, or it be with any and everybody. And even mostly married people don't have God in the equation. Maybe on some small level, but not the way God intended so then he explains that. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as unto the eternal. A wife is to have the same attitude toward her husband as she has to God. Now that is a difficult concept, and Paul's going to call it a mystery here in a little bit. That's a tough concept to entertain. God is overall, he is everything, he is omnipotent, he is omnipresent, he is he's everything. And it says a woman should look to her husband the same way she looks to God. Now the tough part of that is her husband is far short of being God and has all kinds of warts and blemishes and sins and faults and weaknesses that God does not have. Now, he's supposed to be working at overcoming and growing and getting rid of his warts, but he hasn't got it all done yet. So God is giving you ladies a tall choice there, or a tall uh, responsibility, to look to him as you would look to Christ. That means you have to have mercy and not sacrifice, if you will. It means you have to overlook an awful lot to maintain that attitude of gratefulness and thankfulness that God gave you a husband. And it is a gift from God. So respect that. Look to him the way you look to God. And he's going to get on the husband about that here in a minute. 
For the husband is head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he's the Savior of the body. Now there is an incredible concept. Christ is there as the head of the body, and he put, Christ, uh, put man there as a symbol of that. The symbolic is not the ultimate. The symbolic points to it. But in our lives, we are to follow everything in order to become just like the Father and the Son. The husband and the wife are both charged with becoming that way. And he gave us a physical relationship here on the earth to point to what we are to be in the future. So with that comes the kind of respect and love, and kindness, and gentleness, the fruit of the Spirit, if you will, all of those need to be combined in our attitude toward each other as mates, husband and wife. In other words, look at it as if it was Christ in the church, and he's going to say that in a little bit. I'm saying it a little ahead of time so that we might better understand what he's saying here at the beginning. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. <clears throat> he gave himself for it in pain, in agony, in misery, and died for it. So a husband is to have the same attitude toward his wife as Christ did toward all of us as church members in giving his life for us. So she is to look to her husband as if he was Christ, and he is to sacrifice himself for her as if he was Christ. Do you treat her with kindness, with gentleness, with love, do you lord it over her and be arrogant and sacrifice her comfort for your comfort? Christ sacrificed his comfort for his wife. He gave himself for her. It'll make it a whole lot easier for her to look to you as she does to Christ if you act like Christ did to her. This goes both ways. You to think about her, her comfort, her needs, her wants, her feelings. Not to ignore her, or take her for granted, or just use her for your purposes. And especially, we might say, in intimacy. What's the purpose of all this? He gave himself for her, the church, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with washing of water by the word. All the words of God are to be used to cleanse his bride. That's what we're here for as potential brides of Christ, is to be cleansed and washed with God's word. A lot of men try to cleanse and wash their wife with their words. This is what I want you to do. 
I am in charge. I am the boss, and you'll do what I say. That is not in any way the way Christ treats the church. He does it with love, with kindness, with patience, and draws us toward him. He doesn't push us away by saying, I'm the man, you're the woman, uh, go plow the corn. That he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. That's the way Christ wants his bride to become, and he wants us, being gentle in the word of God, to help her fulfill the word of God so that she is without spiritual spot or blemish or any such thing. And it's difficult for any human being to be without spot or blemish polluted by this world, by our nature, and by Satan. And it takes a lot of help and patience and kindness and forgiveness for any of us to help each other to that condition. The man is to help his woman become that, and she is to follow his lead in becoming that. He puts leadership and responsibility on the man. Okay? And we'll hold him responsible, to one degree or another, for her spiritual condition. Because he lays it on us. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loves his wife loves himself. If he doesn't treat her with kindness and gentleness and patience, then he doesn't love himself. Because he should be the embodiment of all those qualities of the Spirit and love himself and love her as much as he loves himself. He makes sure he's comfortable. Make sure she's comfortable. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, even as the Lord the church. So he's bringing it right back to the church here, okay? He gave up his flesh for the church. Now, notice what he says. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. We become one with him. We're intimately involved with not only his outer appearance, but clear down to the bone. They say beauty is in the flesh, but ugly goes clear to the bone is an old expression. We go clear to the bone with Christ, and he's beautiful all the way through. Now, for this cause, because we are members of Christ and to become absolutely one with him, shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. So even as we are to become completely bound with Christ, clear to the bone, a husband and wife are to be the same way. Now, you're not that way with a man or a woman you meet on the street. You're not that way with a 
man or woman at work. You're not that way with a brother or sister in the church. You're that way with your mate and your mate only because that represents Christ in the church. You'll be joined as one. This is a great mystery, Paul says. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. So he's saying a marriage between a man and a woman is to be the same relationship that he has with the church. And let's go to John 17 and verse 20. John 17. We read this every Passover and sometimes at other times. Now I'm coming past and can't find it. Here it is. Now he's giving this prayer about his disciples. Verse 20. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us that the world may believe that you have sent me. So he said, marriage between Christ and the disciples is the same as with he and his father, as we go on, and that a marriage, Paul says, of a physical man and woman pictures Christ in the church, or Christ and his disciples, as he's saying here, that they are to be one. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one even as we are one. We're to have the same intimacy, the same closeness that the Father and the Son have, okay? That's what we're to be. We're to become. We're to be working on that. I and them, and you and me, that they be made perfect in one and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. The Father has the same love for us that he had for Christ. What an incredible thought. What an incredible concept for us to grasp because we are so far below them in our thoughts, our minds, our deeds. His thoughts are so much higher than our thoughts. And yet the intent and purpose is that we become just like them and become one with them. Now let's go to 1 Corinthians 6. And we're going to start tying this together. 1 Corinthians 6. Let's begin up in verse 15. Know you not that your bodies are the members of Christ. Now, didn't we read in Ephesians 5 how we are bone for bone, one with him, clear to the bone, members of him? 
Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them the members of a harlot? God forbid. The human body was made to be joined in spirit totally and eternally with the Father and the Son throughout eternity. And we are to become one as they are one. Now, on a physical level, he created man and woman. And Christ even said in Matthew 19 that he allowed more than one wife, that he allowed divorce for the hardness of their hearts. In other words, man is so hard against God and unwilling to obey God that he allowed them a certain amount of latitude for a while while he tried to work with them and get them to be what he had intended them to be in the first place. But that has been a very, very difficult chore. So he said, yes, we allowed that for a time for the hardness of your heart but in the beginning, it was not so. It was not the original intent. The original intent, as stated by God, was for Adam and Eve to come together sexually, intimately, to become one flesh. And that that physical relationship represented the oneness of the Father and the Son and the Bride, eternal beings forever. It is a symbol of it. It is a picture of it, of the oneness that he intends. And indeed, that physical intimacy was designed in such a way that the feelings, the emotions, the nerves, everything about it, when it is completed satisfactorily with an uh, orgasm at the end, is representative of what we are to be with the Father and the Son. Our relationship is ultimately to be an orgasm with them. Now, an orgasm physically it's just a combination of feelings and nerves and so on that produce a very as pleasurable an emotion as there is. And a woman will never be more beautiful in her life than she is during an orgasm because that is the most pleasurable thing that God has made for man and woman to enjoy. He did it for a purpose, and it is that very act that creates oneness of flesh. Yeah, you can go out and be joined together with all kinds of men or women, harlots, warmongers, but it is a spiritual thing that defies and goes completely against what God intended sex to mean. It is a terrible perversion of the highest of physical things that represent spiritual things. That's why it is so far out of uh, 
So you make your members part of the members of the harlot? No, we're to be joined to Christ through physical intimacy between a man and a woman and a man and a woman only. What? Know you not that he which is joined to an harlot is one body? There is an intimacy there that physical sex creates a oneness that you cannot have any other way. You can be good friends, you can have nice dinner, you can play dinners together, but that intimacy is something that God put on such a level that you don't know anyone in any other way than you do through a sexual uh, experience. And he says you're not to know that with any but one because that oneness between those two represents Christ in the church. What a mystery. What a spiritual, what a deep spiritual concept. It puts it on a level that is beyond what 99.999% of mankind can even begin to understand because they don't have the Spirit of God. But there is something that happens there in that activity that cannot and will not happen in any other way. There's even a scripture that says that when a man has sex with a woman, he discovers her secret. We're all different. Everybody will be a little bit different in how they react and how they do it and what their feelings are and how they express themselves. That is something about another individual that you cannot discover or know. It's a secret thing. It cannot be derived, determined, or understood except through that. And God said, God forbid that that should happen with anyone other than your mate because of what it represents. Oneness. He that is joined to the eternal is one spirit. You become one with God. Flee fornication. And here he puts it, what I was trying to express. Every sin that a man does is without the body. You can steal something, and it's wrong, and it hurts somebody else, but it doesn't really hurt your body. But he that commits fornication sins against his own body. A sexual relationship, illegally done, hurts your own self. It causes all kinds of problems. If you want to look around in the world with people who are promiscuous and the problems that they have ultimately as a result of it. It messes them up uh, mentally, emotionally, spiritually if involved. Uh, it messes up their future relationship with a husband or a wife because they've already experienced something that should have been between them only. And even then, not until they are bound together. What? Know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit which is in you, which you have of God, and you are not your own? You don't have a right to have sex with anybody but the one you're married to. This is speaking of our relationship with God. You're not your own. 
For you are bought with a price. What is that price? Christ's death for you. That's the price he paid for you. And he wants you to be faithful totally, truly, and eternally to him. And he gave us physical marriage to picture that. And if we infringe upon it, then we're blowing the picture out of the water. That's what he's saying here. You're bought with a price. Therefore, glorify your God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Your, God, your body belongs to God. Your spirit belongs to God. And you're to glorify him in both. So our physical marriages are here as a direct type of Christ and the church. And any infringement upon that is a sin to death. It's one of the Ten Commandments. Now, the reason I'm going here uh, in speaking of is it okay to have sex on the Sabbath, let's say, is because of the spiritual value that is involved. The Sabbath is set aside to do what? To glorify God, to worship God, to rest from our normal endeavors, and to concentrate upon the Spirit. And intimacy in marriage is a direct type of our relationship with God. So, we can get separated emotionally uh, with each other on Wednesday and Thursday. We can be doing this, doing that, take each other for granted. We can have intimacy during the week, uh, and he leaves that open to us every day or twice a day or once a month. That, that's up to us. But when it is done, it needs to be done with the thought in mind that this represents my relationship with Christ and his with me and with the church. And it is a very important thing. It is the thing that draws a man and a woman closer together than anything else. If done in the right attitude with the right person, in the right way, with understanding of what this means. So, our object on the Sabbath is to draw near to God and in our relationship with Him, and our physical marriage is a direct type of that. Yes, it's pleasurable, but it's not our pleasure we're seeking. It is our pleasure in God. It is our pleasure and the idea of eternity, it is in a picture of the way our relationship with God should be, as Christ told the disciples, that they be one as we are. So for a man and woman to be intimate on the Sabbath is for them to use that as a symbol of the closeness they are to have with God. People approach that intimacy wrongly, most people most of the time, let's say, because most people are not thinking so much of their mate or their partner, if you will, as they are about their own pleasures. That's why you have the slam-bam, thank you, mammers, 
and the get-in, get-off, and get-outers that so many men are. They're concerned only about their own desire and their own pleasure and not sharing with the wife or the partner and being sure that she is loved as they are loved. There are an awful lot of women that count ceiling tiles because they're bored, uh, because the husband is only there for his own pleasure, and he's not there exciting her, helping her, enjoying her, caressing her, making her feel important and valuable. She just feels used. Okay, he's, he feels better, but I'm un, incomplete. I'm unfinished. A lot of women on the world like that because the man is selfish and he only cares about pleasuring himself. That's not Christianity. That's not Christianity at all. You're to love your neighbor as yourself and it goes beyond that with your mate, your wife, or your husband. You're to be one flesh. You're to be joined together plumb to the bone like Christ is with the church. That is to be an intimacy that is shared with no one else because it does represent that. And it is so very, very vital. God designed that part of our existence, our bodies, very carefully, and he made that desire very, very strong in human beings. So it is a very strong thing that people misuse. But it is something that is very strong for the purpose of helping us picture Christ in the church. So to do it on the Sabbath, if you do it right, bringing pleasure to each other, taking care of each other, in a very intimate situation, then it should draw you very close together. All the little troubles and all the little uh, things that get in the way and the taking for granted in a sex relationship done properly should go away. And you should feel close when it is all done, not, thank you, ma'am, turn over and go to sleep, or whatever. There's a lot of different scenarios out there. Crude, perhaps, but real. But it is to bring you close together as one, as very intimate. So that is the direct picture of Christ in the church. And therefore, on the Sabbath, it is a spiritual, not just a physical, but a spiritual activity that is to draw you close together to picture you and Christ in the church. That makes it legal on the Sabbath. Because drawing together with each other is a symbol of drawing closer to God. And he made sex, done properly, to be the pinnacle of human satisfaction, completeness, enjoyment, and pleasure. The pinnacle of it. Because it draws a husband and wife close together. Now done outside of marriage, it can have all kinds of different ramifications, and a lot of times it's one night and move on, and it doesn't have any meaning other than that. That was fun for a little while. No. There's great and very deep meaning involved here. 
And that is what makes it okay on the Sabbath, is the spiritual value and the spiritual meaning. Even though it takes energy, even though it takes some thought and some admiration at God for what he has done and what he is doing in us. It is the kind of energy spent that is worthwhile because it points to God. It helps us worship him. We are to have the same kind, the same level and higher of relationship with him that we have with each other with a man and a woman who respect each other, love each other, and come together in an intimate way that is beyond comprehension if you really understand what it is that you're doing and what it pictures. So it is a very intimate part of our worship and relationship with God. Now I'm going to turn, I have... I'm going to take a little more time and go back to Isaiah 58 and conclude this, and then we'll go on to other things next week, God willing. But let's go back to Isaiah 58 for a moment, because that's kind of where we started. Uh, Isaiah 58 and verse 13. If they turn away their foot from the Sabbath, it's something you don't walk on. It's there to be managed properly. And walking all over it, misusing it and abusing it is not to be done. From doing your pleasure on my holy day and call the Sabbath a delight. Now, so far we've talked about the pleasurable things, what it is to to step on the Sabbath, the things we shouldn't be doing, and the normal pleasures of life that don't picture God the Father and Christ in the church. Now, that we just covered today. But you call the Sabbath a delight. It is not a day of not do. It is a day of delight. Our relationship with God should be becoming a delight. If we just pray to the ceiling and there's no feeling, there's no relationship involved, then... It's not delightful. It's just rehearsing words. But there has to be feeling and emotion and desire in our relationship with God so that we are building that relationship. And that's what we were reading in Ephesians 5. They are to be building respect and love and feeling for each other on a day-by-day basis. And the physical part Uh, The intimacy part is the greatest part of that because it puts everything else aside and brings oneness. It brings feelings of love and affection, and it's just wonderful. It's the most probably wonderful gift God gave us. Now, some people will disagree with that, but they don't understand God, and they don't understand what we're talking about because of abuse, because of pedophilia, because of wrong teachings in churches, and all kinds of things that get in the way of that relationship being what it ought to be. You shouldn't have memories of past lovers there. 
to get in the way and cloud and murk up your relationship with your husband or wife. May have them, but they shouldn't have been. And now they are there to affect you in one degree or another because that is a oneness that cannot be achieved in any other way and it goes deeper than other hurts and offenses and other things that occur. This is a sin against the body. So what do we do when we go to God? We quit whoring around with the world, and I don't mean about physical intimacy here, but that the ways of the world, the ways of Satan, the normal work of the world, we put it aside. We forget about all that stuff, and we worship and serve God. And intimacy, intimacy in marriage is the greatest expression of that that God gave us. So that's okay on the Sabbath. It's the greatest expression of love that God gave. And used properly, it is that. should be that. And if it isn't, you need to be working toward making it that. Not just putting up with it or ho-hum. Our relationship with God should not be ho-hum. It should be active and alive and interested and exciting. It's what our relationship with God should be. In the Sabbath, we have to deepen and make that intimate relationship with him even more intimate so that it is a delight. The Sabbath is to be a delight. It's not a no-no day. It's a yes-yes day. Use it to be a delight in God. And if you don't delight in prayer and study, you've got some work to do yet. If you don't delight in meditation on all the things he created and see him through them, then you have some work to do because that's where we're headed. And he threw out Laodicea because of lack of happiness and delight and joy in the intimacy that we are to have with God. And our marriage is an absolute picture of that. So the sex on the Sabbath, in that sense, is far more important than on Monday, Tuesday, or Wednesday. Because that is the day where you have more time to enjoy each other, more time to think about what it means and the intimacy with God that you ought to have. And if you become closer to your mate, then that is a springboard to become closer with God and use other parts of the Sabbath for that. This is a picture that we are living. And we need to make the picture right, the symbolism right. It's a delight. The holy of the eternal, honorable. We honor the Sabbath. We honor the God who made it. We honor the God who gave us all the gifts that we have. And it's a day to appreciate his gifts. Life, breathing, understanding, thinking, mates. All gifts from God. And shall honor him, not doing your own ways, but sex in marriage is his way. Any other use of it is Satan's way. But doing it God's way is his way. 
Now, finding your own pleasures, but the ones he's given us that are legal and on the Sabbath. It's not work. <laughs> you get paid for it. And then that's illegal, too. Nor speaking your own words. Your mind, your thoughts are to be toward God. And in intimacy in marriage is the peak of that, done properly and in the right attitude. Then shall you delight yourself in the eternal. Keeping the Sabbath properly is to build delight in God. If you're not building delight in God on the Sabbath, you're not keeping it in the Spirit. And I will cause you to ride upon the high places of the earth and uh, feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father, for the mouth of the Eternal has spoken it. Keeping the Sabbath is one of the very keys to receiving blessing and honor and glory from God that was promised to Jacob. The Sabbath is so very important in how we keep it and in the spirit that God intended so that it is a delight and we delight in him and it builds our relationship toward absolute oneness with God. This is something we need to keep in mind all the time and every week, especially the Sabbath. So that will be all for today.